the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Welcome to the Monday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. Glad to have you with us. James Blend is producing, Clark Hilton Engineering, and Dan Rice. Well, he's given up his office for the sake of the cause. Today on the program, in our second hour, we'll talk with Mark Moore. He's the author of Core 52, Student Edition, a 15-minute daily guide to build your Bible IQ in a year. Now, he uh, published, and it was a bestseller, uh, Core 52 edition that wasn't designed specifically for students. But We'll talk about this one uh, and why it's important to help anchor young people to their faith. So that's coming up in the second hour of today's program. Well, first, taking a look at Oregon. Oregon's going to allow people to go maskless uh, outside, but you're going to be required to be fully vaccinated against COVID-19 and be able to prove it to forego masks in most public indoor settings. So the um, passport, as some referred to it when it applied to travel, applies in Oregon, at least for the time being. Well, that's according to new guidance released by the Oregon Health Authority, On Tuesday, Oregonians will no longer be required to wear masks in public outdoor areas, uh, regardless of their vaccination status under the new guidance. However, the state is still recommending that people wear masks in crowds and large gatherings, especially if they're unvaccinated or at high risk for COVID. Now, let me repeat that because it includes those who are vaccinated and those who are not. You no longer are required to wear masks in public, public rather, outdoor areas, regardless of your vaccination status. But if you're in a um, crowded area at a large gathering, especially if you're unvaccinated or at high risk of COVID-19, um, you need to wear your mask, according to the state, uh, or you need to prove that you've been vaccinated. The state will also allow fully vaccinated people to forego masks in most indoor spaces if their inoculation status can be verified putting the onus on businesses, employers, and faith institutions to check vaccination records. Well, the new guidance comes after the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention announced last week that fully vaccinated people generally do not need to wear masks or maintain physical distance in most public settings. Now, masks have been required in most circumstances across all of Oregon since um, the 1st of July. Well, some states have responded cautiously to these new guidance uh, rules and they haven't yet lifted mask uh, mandates. Uh, Dr. Dean Seidlinger, who's Oregon's health officer and epidemiologist, said he wasn't specifically aware of other states that had adopted similar vaccine passport requirements as Oregon has opted to do. <clears throat> Excuse me. Seidlinger said vaccinated uh, individuals will be required to show their vaccine cards uh, or provide a, f- a photocopy or photo of their vaccine cards to forego masks in public indoor settings. So you can whip it out on your phone uh, if you are so inclined. He said the new guidance would be enforced by the Oregon Occupational Safety and Health Division and other state agencies, but added that the state um, uh, was not expecting businesses to determine the authenticity of customers' vaccine records. We hope that Oregonians will not lie or cheat and put others at risk by forging a vaccine uh, record if they aren't vaccinated 
Uh, he said, well, Oregon will still require all people, including those who have been fully vaccinated, to wear masks and maintain physical distance in public transportation and in schools, healthcare facilities, homeless shelters, long-term care uh, homes, and correctional institutions. Now, businesses and venues operators uh, that don't want to check vaccination cards or that want to maintain more restrictive policies will still be allowed to require masks at their uh, discretion, according to the state. They can continue to serve their customers and have their employees wear masks in these settings, a sidelinker said. But for businesses that want to serve their customers in a different way by allowing them to remove their masks um, if they're fully vaccinated or have their staff be able to remove their masks if they're fully vaccinated, they need to institute a system where individuals can share their vaccination status. So we are at a point, according to the state, where you're required to prove that you have been fully vaccinated. And again, that is defined by having had, uh, in cases where it's required, two shots, not just one, and two weeks following that second shot, you are considered fully vaccinated uh, under that circumstance. Meanwhile, Oregon's governor says vaccine verifications are an interim measure. Under current guidance, if a business wants to allow customers inside without masks, the business has to verify that a customer has been vaccinated. Uh, Many businesses feel this is a big burden, and throughout the pandemic, they've had to bear that burden uh, and be be the enforcers of the rules. Well, on Friday, Governor Kate Brown clarified that businesses will no longer have to take that step once 70% of adult Oregonians are vaccinated. And again, they are not required to uh, confirm that the vaccination status card or whatever verification is offered is in fact valid. They're not required to do that. Well, with mask mandates lifted in most states, many Americans are enjoying the return of what they believe is normal. But we're also seeing the true faces of those in power who seek to use sensitive medical information like vaccination status to oppress others. Private companies, organizations, educational institutions announce their plans as people return to the office and classrooms, some requiring proof of full COVID-19 vaccination before walking through their doors. Some businesses plan to even segregate the vaccinated from the unvaccinated. Patrick Hampton, writing for Patriot Post, points this out. Not getting the jab is the new scarlet letter. Once worn as a punitive mark to label someone as an adulterer based on the American novel bearing the same name, those who are open about their non-vaccinated status will be forced to exist on the fringes of society. What's even more insane is how some Americans are excited about their treatment, this treatment of their fellow man, taking to social media to express how they refuse to eat in a restaurant next to someone who is unvaccinated. If vaccinated and unvaccinated versions of water fountains existed, people today wouldn't even see what they actually resemble. It's not even about science anymore. It's about control and an allegiance to certain ideas, possibly totalitarianism. It was the Centers for Disease Control that supported masking and social distancing mandates in the spring of 2020. Since then, the CDC has lifted those recommendations for people who are fully vaccinated, but still, We see hordes of people, even or maybe especially vaccinated folks, walking around with masks, double masks, and maintaining their six-foot bubble. It's because this is comfortable for them, despite some very important considerations that he reviews in his uh, recent Patriot Post column. What does it mean to be fully vaccinated anyway? With new COVID variants making headlines and incidences of people still catching COVID after a jab, 
grant a tiny fraction so far. Many Americans don't put much faith in a vaccination card. Like the mask, the V card only exists to ease fears and concerns of the anxious and unfortunately ignorant. Given the plethora of conflicting information so readily available out there, what are we supposed to believe? It's a really legitimate and good question. Speaking of business, how will the vaccine status impact hiring practices? This is a widespread pandemic emerging on the heels of COVID-19 as employers struggle to find workers thanks to the manufactured unemployment crisis made possible by the president's uh, uh, Joe Biden. Companies are suffering and some uh, stores have been forced to change their operating hours or even close altogether. But even still, some stores have the nerve to impose their own vaccination guidelines, requiring staff to be vaccinated to maintain employment. Now, this can't be wise considering the number of people who are fed up with masking and distancing. And with a government check being uh, a readily available, proof of vaccination could prove to be a fatal shot in the proverbial foot of an at-risk business. What will this medical totalitarianism state do to our children's well-being? We fought so hard to raise our kids in a free society only to teach them that it's perfectly okay to discriminate based on a medical condition or status. Imagine the trauma that a school-aged child will experience with other children when they refuse to play with him because some overzealous teacher shared his vaccination status. This could go both ways for both vaccinated and unvaccinated children as young people learn early on how to create clicks. In uh, the eyes of a concerned parent of four, nothing about this new normal is healthy or sane. We may not be able to discern the psychological impacts in the present moment, but we shouldn't be surprised if our children grow up to recall traumatic experiences from the COVID age. Medical tyranny is among us, and companies and schools playing this game deserve to be the center of much blame and the creation of their own issues. The other answer is actual freedom, not freedom with an asterisk or fine print underneath. Again, quoting from Patrick Hampton, writing on what he describes as medical tyranny that may be the result of this uh, current two-tier system, the vaccinated and the unvaccinated. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We're going to take a quick break. But we'll be back in a moment. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Before we return to the news, I want to ask you a question. How would you like to help make Father's Day extra special this year? Well, you can enter our Father's Day giveaway and you could win $1,000 in cash for your dad. Now, we've made it easy for you to participate. Just go to kpdq.com and enter the keyword father and to increase your opportunity to win you can enter once each day now through the 20th of june plus we're providing you with uh, bonus uh, entries you can earn too enter today at kpdq.com the keyword father one thousand dollars for your dad this father's day well on thursday the oregon health authority started warning doctors to look for heart inflammation in anyone who has chest pain and has recently been vaccinated following six cases in Oregon and Washington. So far, the Oregon Health Authority is telling physicians this is an investigation into a possible link between myocarditis and pericarditis and the Moderna or Pfizer vaccines, particularly in young people. 
So no link has been established thus far. Well, OHA has not issued any public statements about a possible link between myocarditis or heart inflammation and COVID vaccines. But an email sent to doctors May the 20th mentions six cases in the Pacific Northwest. Oregon Health Authority is aware of at least six cases of myocarditis in Washington and Oregon following COVID-19 vaccination, including cases in adolescence. The May 20th notice to doctors reads, to support ongoing monitoring for those potential adverse effects or events, the Oregon Health Authority asks that providers evaluate for myocarditis or pericarditis following vaccination and report any such cases promptly to the U.S. Vaccine Adverse Events Reporting System. Providers are asked to report any cases with symptoms within the two weeks following vaccination, including first and second doses of the vaccine. Well, that warning fits with national action. The U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention posted a formal notice on the 17th of May that it was looking into relatively few reports of myocarditis, particularly in adolescents and young adults, and especially in males rather than female patients. The New York Times reported May 22nd, well, the cases appear to be mild the CDC goes on to state, when there are incidents of health problems following vaccines, one place doctors and scientists start is by looking to determine whether there is a higher incidence of the condition following the vaccination. So far, that has not been established, uh, meaning the case of heart inflammation may be completely unrelated to vaccines. But the CDC and Oregon Health Authority are asking doctors to be sure to report heart inflammation to uh, VAERS, which is, of course, the reporting system for further review. It may simplify, or rather, it may simply be a coincidence that some people are developing myocarditis after uh, vaccination. Dr. Celine Gowder, an infectious disease specialist at Bellevue Hospital Center in New York, told The Times, it's more likely for uh, something like that to happen uh, by chance because so many people are getting vaccinated right now. So something to keep in mind particularly among male adolescents who are receiving the vaccine. Well, here in the state of Oregon, you could win a million dollars, but only if you're vaccinated against COVID-19, so says Oregon Governor Brown. So something of a bribe and incentive, however you want to... uh, to label it, well, Governor Brown announced on Friday lottery prizes ranging from $10,000 to $1 million for Oregonians vaccinated against COVID-19. It's a strategy that's meant to address the dramatically decreasing numbers of residents inoculated every day. Well, all residents 18 and older who'd have received at least one shot of COVID-19 vaccine by the 27th of June will be entered into the Take Your Shot Oregon Lottery, which will be held on the 28th of June. So you don't have to go in and purchase a ticket, apparently. One lucky vaccinated Oregonian will receive a million-dollar jackpot. 36 others, one from each Oregon county, will win $10,000 prizes. That means residents in the least populated counties, tiny Wheeler County of just 1,440 residents, will have a far better chance of winning that $10,000 than residents in the most populous counties like Multnomah, the largest county uh, with an 830,000-member Uh, Residents, I should say. Well, Oregon lottery rules don't allow anyone under 18 to participate in the cash drawings, but a special drawing will be held for vaccinated youth 12 to 17. Five winners will each win $100,000 contributions to the Oregon College Savings Plan account in their name. The money can be used for college or trade schools. 
Winners will be announced about a week later, most likely on the 4th of July. Well, as of Friday, 52% of Oregonians have uh, been uh, partially vaccinated. 40% have been fully vaccinated against COVID-19. The average daily number of shots administered peaked at about 43,000. And that was back in April, the 11th to be more precise, uh, but have plunged to below 30,000 in recent days. Nationwide, the rate of inoculations has fallen even faster. Well, experts say herd immunity, the point at which the coronavirus can no longer spread because there are so few hosts, is estimated to, at between 70 and 85 uh, percent of people immune either through vaccination or natural protection gained from past bouts with the disease. Given plummeting numbers, many epidemiologists and others are pretty skeptical, uh, skeptical rather, the United States will ever reach herd immunity because people have a choice of whether or not they want to be vaccinated. Uh, says Governor Brown during the live stream news conference on Friday, we will need to pull on every lever we have. So if you've been waiting to get a vaccine or uh, you just haven't gotten around to it yet, we're uh, uh, we're going to give you an extra incentive. How about a chance to win a million dollars? She said it can uh, save your life and just maybe make you a millionaire. So they're pulling out all the stops, uh, entering anyone who has been or will be by the deadline in June vaccinated to be entered into this um, so-called lottery. Wow. Well, the defunding of Portland police by $12 million and 1,000 staff and the explosion of rioting has created a crime spree in the city of Portland. In Portland, murders and manslaughter soared by 60 percent from 35 in 2019 to 56 in 2020, according to crime stats. The number last year is more than double the homicide rates in 2017 and 2018. That's according to Coin6 News. Denver, Washington, D.C., Boston, and Milwaukee also reported higher homicide rates in 2020. In Portland, police officials point to the role of gang violence in shootings, which totaled 829 in 2020, more than twice as many during 2019. And during the first three months of this year, 2021, the Portland Police Bureau reported 273 shootings. And of course, it's only May. The Bureau's gun violence reduction team disbanded last year, but a new group is being formed to address the violence. The Enhanced Community Safety Team. Police officials said that they're experiencing a staffing crisis and need more patrol officers. Well, Mike Bretto Jackson of Portland, who's, uh, who's, who mentors young men involved in violence through Leaders Become Legends, suggested troubled teens need mentors and a connection to their spirituality rather than more law enforcement. He said they also need economic opportunities. Well, that's probably all true, but until they have experienced that transformation, someone has to be available to deal with the shootings and gang violence that are taking place. I'd like to see that reduced um, in relation to the reduction in shootings and gang violence. Again, in Portland, police officials uh, point to the role of gang violence in shootings that totaled 891 last year. That's more than twice as many as during 2019. Well, burglaries also increased in Portland, but with commercial businesses rather than residents more often targeted. Portland statistics showed 5,438 burglaries in Portland during 2020, a 30% increase over 2019. Well, a new book claims that former President Obama was a parasite who sucked the Democratic Party dry to get reelected. Well, a parasite on the Democratic Party is how journalist Edward Isaac DeVere, uh, DeVere rather, describes former President Obama in his forthcoming tell-all book, Battle for the Soul, Inside the Democrats' Campaign to Defeat Trump. Well, in a chapter entitled Benign Neglect, 
Devere writes that this, the uh, section's namesake is how Obama aides privately described his abandonment of the Democratic Party once in the White House. Negligence might be more accurate, Devere uh, writes in The Atlantic and the former chief Washington correspondent for Politico writes. Well, the numbers are hard to ignore. During his eight years in office, Obama oversaw a net loss of 947 state legislative seats, 63 House seats, 11 senators and 13 governors. He continues in 2008, Democrats increased their majorities in the House and Senate, delivering Obama the legislature of his first two years in office. In 2010, Republicans took the majority in the House with the Tea Party wave, and Democrats maintained but shrunk their majority in the Senate. In 2014, Republicans gained control of both the House and the Senate. Dovere writes that the 44th president carried himself with a self-assured self-regard. Obama never built a Democrat bench and never cared to, aside from a few scattered candidates who interested him according to the book. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Quick break. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Coming up in the 5 o'clock hour, we'll talk with Mark Moore. He's the author of Core 52 Student Edition. You might be familiar with his original edition. It was a bestseller. It's a 15-minute daily guide to build your Bible IQ in a year. He'll join us in the 5 o'clock hour. Well, one of the joys of a Christian cruise is the people you meet along the way. In fact, I've had the opportunity to cruise with KPDQ listeners on several occasions, and that is so true. Well, on the upcoming Deeper Faith Alaska cruise with Alistair Begg, Laura Story, and Michael O'Brien, you're going to be surrounded by the Fellowship of Like-Minded Travelers, along with Bible teaching and worship. Now, this once-in-a-lifetime travel experience is hosted by Salem Media Group and our partners, Inspiration Cruises and Tours. I'm not going to have the opportunity to be on this particular cruise, but what a lineup. Alistair Begg, Laura Story, and Michael O'Brien. You'll bring home life-changing memories to treasure and stories to share. So I'd like to encourage you to join this unforgettable Alaska cruise this summer and register today at kpdq.com. And yeah, a cruise in 2021. We're hoping that's uh, going to be a an event to remember for all the right reasons. Well, again, taking a look at the uh, the headlines, Texas aims to crack down on protesters who block traffic there. That chaos won't be tolerated, the governor says. Well, a bill that would increase penalties for protesters blocking roads and obstructing emergency vehicles is on the way to Texas Governor Greg Abbott's desk. And the two-term GOP governor who's running for re-election next year says he'll sign the measure into law. I will sign soon, Abbott tweeted this weekend. Peaceful protest doesn't include blocking roadways and preventing emergency vehicle access. That that chaos won't be tolerated in Texas. Well, the governor sent his tweet soon after the Texas Senate voted 25 to 5 to pass the bill, which would toughen the penalties and calls for jail time for protesters who purposefully block emergency vehicles from passing through a roadway or obstruct a hospital entrance. In other developments, free Palestine demonstrators block traffic in Los Angeles, chanting, long live Intifada. A good Samaritans helped a Florida deputy who was under attack during a traffic stop According to a video, Representative Kinzinger is uh, charging that Representative McCarthy failed to tell the truth. Republican Representative Adam Kinzinger of Illinois is taking aim at Representative Kevin McCarthy, a Republican from California, charging that the House Minority Leader is not being honest with Americans. I do think Kevin has failed to tell the truth, Kinzinger said on Sunday in an interview with Chris Wallace. Uh, Kinzinger was one of just 10 House Republicans who voted in January to impeach then-President Trump 
of inciting the deadly January 6th insurrection at the U.S. Capitol by extremists aiming to disrupt congressional certification of President uh, Biden's Electoral College victory over Trump. And the conservative lawmaker first um, elected to Congress in 2010, uh, in the 2010 Tea Party, rather, uh, that wave was one of 35 House Republicans who last week bucked party um, officials, party leadership, and voted in favor of a January 6th commission to investigate the attack on the Capitol. Well, McCarthy last week announced his opposition to the formation of the commission and worked with House GOP leadership to limit the number of defections when the full chamber voted on the matter on Wednesday. While 35 Republicans supported the inquiry, the vast majority of the 212-member GOP conference opposed the move. Kensinger charged McCarthy failed to tell the truth to the Republicans and the American people, and it pains me to say it, Uh, And it's not like I enjoy standing up and saying this. Well, he noted that a sizable number of the 74 million people who voted for Trump believe the election was stolen, believe it because their leadership have not told them otherwise. The people they uh, trust have either uh, been silent or not told them the truth, end quote. Representative Kinzinger um, uh, hauled in big bucks after facing uh, Trump's wrath. He launched a new pack. Uh, to take back the GOP from Trump, and he defended Liz Cheney, saying McCarthy ignored warnings about potential violence on the 6th of January. Meanwhile, Republican Florida Governor Ron DeSantis signed a bill today to penalize social media companies that suspend the accounts of politicians or censor certain political content. This session, we took action to ensure that we, the people, real Floridians across the Sunshine State, are guaranteed protection against the Silicon Valley elites, DeSantis said. Many in our state have experienced censorship and other tyrannical behavior firsthand in Cuba and Venezuela. If big tech censors uh, enforce rules inconsistently to discriminate in favor of the the, uh, dominant Silicon Valley ideology, they will now be held accountable, the governor said. Well, the law empowers Florida Florida's Election Commission to punish tech companies that engage in censorship with financial penalties. It imposes a maximum fine of up to $250,000 per day, a fine for deplatforming any candidate for statewide office, and a $25,000 per day fine for deplatforming candidates for non-statewide offices. It also allows Floridians the right to file lawsuits against companies that violate the policy and earn compensation for damages. What we've been seeing across the U.S. is an effort to silence, intimidate, and wipe out dissenting voices by the left, uh, leftist media and big corporations. Today, by signing SB 7072 into law, Florida is taking back the virtual public square as a place where information and ideas can flow freely, Lieutenant Governor Jeanette um, Nunez said. Well, DeSantis enacted the bill 7072 into law after the Florida House passed it 73 to 38 and the Florida Senate 23 to 17. If social media platforms are found to have violated antitrust law, they will be restricted from contracting with uh, any public entity. That antitrust violator blacklist imposes real consequences for di- big tech uh, oligarchies. But uh, bottom line, a news release from the governor's office read. So they are serious in Florida. Michigan's Governor Whitmer has apologized again after a photo emerged on social media where she violated her own restrictions. Vice President Kamala Harris wiped her hand after greeting the South Korean leader. She's facing a backlash on Twitter. And St. Louis' uh, murder rate, already the highest in the U.S., soared last year. At the same time, the mayor is vowing to defund the police. The value of the Bitcoin has been cut in half in a weekend slide, and Disneyland plans to introduce a $100 sandwich. 
Wow. Intelligence uh, on six staffers at Wuhan uh, lab fuels the debate on COVID-19's origin. Again, six staffers uh, that were identified in 2019 before uh, this pandemic became world wide and known. Well, despite being just the second Catholic president, Joe Biden didn't give the commencement address at the University of Notre Dame on Sunday. Biden's decline of the invitation breaks a recent tradition that saw the past three presidents or vice presidents deliver commencement addresses at the Catholic school during their first year in office. It doesn't appear that Kamala Harris received an invitation as the university uh, tabbed trustee and finance executive Jimmy um, done to give the commencement speech instead. Given how uh, President Biden's supposed uh, deep Catholic faith has received fawning accolades from the secular media, the question is, what gives? Well, the university spokesman dismissed any significance to it, observing, while Notre Dame has had more presidents serve as commencement speakers than any university other than military academies, we have not always hosted a president in this first year in office or at all. He's uh, got a point. In the modern era, John F. Kennedy, Lyndon Johnson, Richard Nixon, Bill Clinton, and Donald Trump all did not address the school's students. Of course, Kennedy was the nation's first Catholic president, and he may have addressed the school if um, his presidency had not been tragically cut short. Yet that makes Biden's break with recent tradition all the more significant. So why did he reject the invitation? Well, there could be any number of explanations. The answer appears to have everything to do with Biden's very un-Catholic policy positions. Indeed, a petition was launched by Notre Dame alumni and students, garnering some 4,300 signatures, calling on university president Father John Jenkins to not invite Biden as commencement speaker or grant him an honorary degree. The petition pointedly reasoned Catholic institutions should not honor those who act in defiance of our fundamental moral principles. The U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops is likewise pondering how to handle politicians like Biden and others who at once claim the mantle and benefits of the Catholic Church while blatantly defying its teachings. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We're going to take a quick break, but we'll be back to continue to take a look at the news. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, about a month before COVID-19 was first reported in Wuhan, China, foreign government contacts told the State Department that several workers at the Wuhan Institute of Virology fell ill in mid-November of 2019. That's according to a former State Department official on Sunday. Well, the official who worked at the State Department during the Trump administration claimed to have been in touch with those contacts at the time and said colleagues also had been in communications with contacts about the issue. The State Department said that it would not comment on the purported intelligence matters. Well, the State Department acknowledged in January of this year the United States government has reason to believe that several researchers inside the WIV, the Wuhan Institute of Virology, became ill in autumn 2019. It found that they'd experienced symptoms consistent with both COVID-19 and common seasonal illness. But on Sunday, the Wall Street Journal, citing a previous undisclosed U.S. intelligence report, went further and said these workers required hospital care. The report said it was not entirely unusual for people in China to visit hospitals instead of primary care physicians, but the report could lead uh, rather lend weight to the theory that the coronavirus leaked from a laboratory. The report pointed 
to a fact sheet from January that only revealed that these individuals came down with symptoms consistent with both COVID-19 and the common seasonal illnesses like the flu, for example. While the Wuhan Institute of Virology, uh, which is one of China's top virus research labs, uh, built an uh, archive of genetic information about bat coronaviruses after the 2003 outbreak of severe acute respiratory syndrome, or SARS, and has faced criticism over its transparency throughout the pandemic. Well, the journal reported that the veracity of the intelligence is being debated by current and former officials. At least one told the paper that further analysis is needed since the evidence was provided by foreign contacts. Another source uh, told the paper that the uh, the evidence seems to be spot on and was um, exquisite quality. Well, the paper reported that China has denied any allegation that the virus was somehow leaked from the lab. China accuses the United States of containing its um, or rather continuing its effort to hype the lab leak story. China has promoted unproven theories that the virus may have originated elsewhere or even been brought into the country from overseas with imports of frozen seafood tainted with the virus, an ocean roundly rejected by international scientists and agencies. Well, Dr. Anthony Fauci, the director of the National Institutes of uh, Allergy and Infectious Diseases, of course, here in the U.S., said earlier this month that he was still not convinced that the virus developed naturally. Well, that's a lot of cloudiness around the origins of COVID-19 still. Um, so I wanted to ask, are you still confident that the that it developed natural, uh, naturally? Well, PolitiFact's Katie Sanders asked the nation's top infectious disease expert in an event, United Facts of America, a, festi- a festival rather of fact checking. Uh, no, actually, Fauci said, I am not convinced about that. I think we should continue to investigate what went on in China until we continue to find out Uh, the best of our ability, what happened. Well, shoplifting in San Francisco is sending stores packing. After all, uh, it is as close to legal as you can get. The article claims why San Francisco. Well, if the problem stems in part from a change in California law, why aren't other cities in the state seeing similar spikes in shoplifting? Well, they neglected to tell us what other cities have basically legalized uh, shoplifting as well, according to the New York Times. Well, from Byron York, he says enforcing the law is out of fashion in some deep blue cities. And Rich Lowry says how to ruin a once great city, a continuing story with evidently no bottom. A top female runner in Connecticut is expressing the frustration of losing to males from the op-ed by Chelsea Mitchell. Time after time, I have lost. I've lost four women's state championship titles, two all uh, New England awards, and numerous other spots on the podium to male runners. I was bumped to third place in the 55-meter dash in 2019 behind two male runners. With every loss, it gets harder and harder to try again. Facebook shut down a page where People prayed for the safety of Israelis. The Jerusalem prayer group was bombarded with anti-Semitic comments before Facebook shut it down. 60 Minutes is covering the many trans who seek to reverse course. Now, this is surprising because this is not supposed to happen at all. And for 60 Minutes to cover it is rather surprising. Helping expose the dangerous trend to rush individuals through the process, much of which can never be reversed. Abigail Shire, important at 60 Minutes, acknowledging the role of peer influence in social media and encouraging trans identification in teens, the rising population of detransitioners and a medical system that affirms self-diagnosis of gender dysphoria in place of adequate oversight. The American Psychological Association has punished a professor for saying there are only two sexes. 
Now, you would think the American Psychological Association would know better because there are only two sexes. But from the story, John Stadden was removed from the Society for Behavioral Neuroscience and Comparative Psychology Division, um, which is uh, overseen by the APA, after posing a series of questions to the group that apparently upset others. Well, Stadden told the outlet that the uh, post he believes resulted in his removal from the group uh, was one in which he asked, hmm, binary view of sex, false, question mark. What is the evidence? Is there a Z chromosome, question mark? He's asking the questions of scientists as a scientist. Apparently, no longer acceptable. Well, the State Department learned that several Wuhan lab researchers were sickened before the COVID-19 outbreak. Uh, Flip-flopper Anthony Fauci is suddenly not convinced COVID-19 developed naturally. Well, there you have it. The facts seized... um, a national security, the feds rather, seized $90,000 from far-left rioters who said January 6th footage to CNN and NBC. National Guardsmen who were exploited for security theater finally returned home from the Capitol. And Microsoft says it was hit by Chinese hackers, but the Biden administration won't point a finger. Naturally, pro-Palestinian House Democrats reject a measure to boost Israeli security aid. The Department of Homeland Security uh, grants um, protected status to 150,000 Haitian migrants. And Iran says inspectors may no longer get nuclear sites images. Well, a uh, Virginia judge sealed more than 145,000 absentee ballots for an election fraud investigation. You can read more at The Federalist online. And serial offender and perhaps hypocrite Governor Gretchen Whitmer apologized again after violating social distancing rules at a bar. These are rules she herself fashioned and imposed on others in her state. While new COVID cases haven't been this low in the U.S. since last June, according to NPR, and California plans to remove pandemic restrictions on June 15th. Oregonians must now show proof of vaccination to forego masks indoors. The authoritarian state says you can read more about that in the Oregonian if anybody still reads the Oregonian and a judge ruled Christian colleges must follow Biden's rule opening dorms and showers to opposite sex uh, sexes. Jeffrey Epstein's uh, guards who slept um, the night of his suicide struck a deal to avoid time behind bars and more gun companies are leaving anti-gun states in the rearview mirror. Buoyed by taxpayer COVID aid, big hospital chains are buying up competitors. And on this day in history, Samuel F.B. Morse, he transmits the message, what hath God wrought? <laughs> Let me say that again. What hath God wrought? From Washington to Baltimore as he formally opens America's first telegraph line, Morris Code, as we know it. 1883, the Brooklyn Bridge opens in New York City in a ceremony attended by President Chester Arthur and Governor Grover Cleveland. 1935, the first night game in Major League Baseball history is played after President Franklin Roosevelt activated a switch that turns the lights on at Crosley Field in Cincinnati. 1937, the U.S. Supreme Court upholds the constitutionality of the Social Security Act of 1935. 1994, on this day in history, four Islamic fundamentalists convicted of bombing New York's World Trade Center in 1993 are each sentenced to 240 years in prison. 19, rather, 2018, after a Justice Department briefing, Representative Adam Schiff, the top Democrat on the House Intelligence Committee, says there's no evidence to support claims that there was a government spy in President Trump's campaign. 
2018, also in on this day in history, President Trump grants a rare posthumous pardon to boxing's first black heavyweight champion, Jack Johnson, more than 100 years after what many see as a racially charged conviction for violating the Mann Act by traveling with his white girlfriend. 2019, Missouri Governor Mike Parsons He signs a bill that bans abortion on or beyond the eighth week of pregnancy without exceptions for cases of rape or incest, uh, incest rather, making it among the most restrictive abortion policies in the nation. Well, Biden's Supreme Court Commission met for the first time as key abortion, uh, a key abortion case looms in the U.S. Supreme Court. A judicial uh, crisis network president, Carrie Severino, broke down the significance and timing of the case, challenging uh, Roe versus Wade. Uh, President Biden already under intense uh, criticism for lack of transparency on the border and immigration policies, launched his Supreme Court Reform Commission in a way that is sure to bring more suspicion and mistrust his way. With a dangerous court packing movement pushed by Democratic progressives, the commission held a Zoom meeting on Wednesday. The 36-member commission went virtual in its first meeting, a, str- a strange tactic when the entire constitutional order is hanging in the balance. The commission's idea of encouraging um, a commentary and debate on this politicization of the federal judiciary to filter uh, everything through unnamed faceless bureaucrats. Well, attendance at the virtual event required registration by submitting name, organization if applicable, email address and phone number to the designated federal officer who, of course, was also unknown. Uh, What was uh, billed as a serious project, uh, giving thoughtful attention to the mounting problem, quickly revealed itself as a political show. Wednesday's meeting, the first of only six public meetings, lasted just over 20 minutes. And, of course, it had a rather large number of attendees. Um, Wednesday's meeting, the first, lasted only 20 uh, minutes. Uh, only one of only six meetings, only a handful of the commissioners spoke. And when they did, they read from a script. Uh, Those who attended were assured that the public will have input, but only if they uh, send an email or happen to qualify as one of um, up to 24 nameless witnesses to be called at the next two public meetings of the commission. One of the uh, bedrock principles of a democratic system of government is that a free self-governed people sovereign over their democracy or constitutional republic must have the information they need to make sound choices at the ballot box and hold their representatives accountable. How will elected officials know if voters favor court packing or are against it? Well, fortunately, we already know what Americans uh, voters say about it. A new Mason-Dixon poll found that 68 percent of Americans oppose court packing. What's more, 63 percent of Americans, including over a third of Democrats, agree that court packing is primarily partisan proposal intended to increase political power. So now we know how uh, the commission is likely to function. Now, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We've got news and traffic coming here at the top of the hour. When we return, we'll continue to wind our way through the news, but we'll also talk with Mark Moore. He's the author of Core 52, the student edition, a 15-minute daily guide to build your Bible IQ in a year. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show. Coming up this hour, we're going to talk with Mark Moore. He's the author of Core 52 Student Edition, a 15-minute daily guide to build your Bible IQ in a year. You may be familiar with his best-selling Core 52 that was the adult version, very popular. This one is tailored specifically for students, and we'll talk with him uh, more about that when he joins us in our next segment. 
Also wanted to remind you that KPDQ is on Facebook and Instagram. If you're on Facebook or Instagram, we'd love for you to uh, join us at 93.9 KPDQ. Stay connected with us for biblical encouragement, updates, and other news. We look forward to connecting with you there at 93.9. Well, a federal judge on Wednesday rejected a Christian college's request to halt the Biden administration's directive on gender identity in dwellings. Well, the College of the Ozarks, which is a Christian college in Missouri, had argued the government order, which claims to fight discrimination against transgender people, impinges on the rights of Christians and violates biblical beliefs. Well, the dispute sets up a new legal battle over religious liberty and gender identity. Judge Roseanne Ketchmark, an Obama appointee, heard oral oral arguments from both sides for more than two hours on Wednesday. After the hearing, she announced she would deny the college's request to issue an injunction against the rule, which requires that segregated facilities such as dorms and restrooms be based on a person's gender identity. doesn't matter what your biology is. It just matters what you say you want it to be. Well, after careful consideration of the law, the court denies the plaintiff's motion for temporary restraining order and injunction, she said from the bench. The court does find that the dispute is not justicable. Well, the judge plans to issue a written order as soon as possible, she said. Valerie Coleman, a spokesperson for the college, said the school will appeal. The College of the Ozarks sued the Biden administration last month after the Department of Housing and Urban Development. They issued a directive following the president's executive order banning discrimination based on sexual orientation or gender identity. Well, the new directive seasoned rather reasoned that the Fair Housing Act prohibits discrimination on the basis of sex in dwellings, including colleges. Um, the College of the Ozarks argued in order to uh, uh, the order will inf- will force the school to allow students of different sex Uh, into dorms and um, intimate areas. For decades, the college has prohibited male students from living in female dormitories and vice versa, regardless of whether those students identify with their biological sex. The college likewise separates intimate spaces, such as showers and bathrooms, in its dormitories, the school lawsuit read. Well, the lawsuit claimed the, the memorandum issued by HUD says agencies participating in the Fair Housing Act assistance program must either administer a law that explicitly prohibits discrimination because of gender identity and sexual orientation or must apply its fair housing law in a manner consistent with Bostock, referring to a 2020 Supreme Court decision. Well, the uh, Biden administration discrimination guidance came down after the Supreme Court ruled last year in Bostock versus Clayton County that the Civil Rights Act of 1964 meant an employee could not be terminated on the basis of sexual orientation or gender identity because that is a form of sex discrimination. The ruling was 6-3 with Chief Justice John Roberts Jr. and Justice Neil Gorsuch joining the liberal wing of the, the uh, court. Julie Blake, a lawyer for Alliance Defending Freedom representing the college, said during oral arguments that the high court's ruling um, authored by Justice Gorsuch noted that the ruling's uh, ruling rather was focused on the employment context and did not apply to gender conflicts over access to dressing rooms. It was stated explicitly when agency officials applied the directive, they did not apply Bostock, she told the court of Biden officials. They extended Bostock 
it's not uh, it's a new standard. Well, lawyers for the Justice Department defended the Biden administration policy, telling the judge that many of the arguments made by the college were rejected by the Supreme Court in the Bostock case. However, that was not one of them. Well, Judge Liu, an attorney with the Justice Department, said the college should have to show uh, there were a greater degree of harm for the anti-discrimination policy, saying the school doesn't show significant injury to get into court. He added the college hasn't cited a real complaint. Serena Orloff, another Justice Department attorney, said the government's memorandum simply notes that HUD will investigate all claims of discrimination. She said leaving a hypothetical student who may face discrimination in the housing context due to sexual orientation or gender identity out of this dispute is unfair. This is a pure one-sided dispute. Ms. Orloff said uh, there is another perspective that is not represented here. Well, the crux of the school's argument was that the Biden administration's policy was issued without a period for notice and comment, which is required under the Administrative Procedure Act. The college also claimed the Biden directive violates its constitutional rights. So while the uh, judge has uh, ordered, uh, has spoken to the issue, uh, it is not by any means over. Over 220 years, the um, Injustice of taxation without representation has lived on in Washington, D.C., complained D.C. Mayor Muriel Bowser early this year. Uh, Her push is finally um, to finally right this wrong involves the Democrats uh, pet project of statehood for the constitutionally district uh, federal district of Columbia. It's a uh, distortion, if you will, of the no taxation without representation slogan of the American Revolution. But the good people of eastern Oregon have said, hey, Maybe they're on to something. Well, earlier this week, voters, or last week, I should say, voters in five Oregon counties, Baker, Grant, Lake, Malheur, and Sherman, approved measures to recommend the process of seceding from the state of Oregon and joining neighboring Idaho. Jefferson and Union counties passed similar measures last year, and there is a push for more to make a contiguous Idaho. Well, the argument is that the more conservative eastern portion of the state is clearly not being represented by the more populous, powerful, and very leftist western uh, side of the state. Well, according to The Hill, Oregon voters favored President Biden over former President Trump by a 56% uh, to 40% margin in 2020. But voters in those five rural counties uh, gave between 69 to 79% uh, of their vote to Trump. Democrats in Portland and their lawless vagabonds uh, filling the ranks of Antifa have a stranglehold on the state, and voters in the eastern half clearly aren't feeling Joe Biden's unity. This election proves that rural Oregon wants out of Oregon. If Oregon really believes in liberal values such as self-determination, the legislature won't hold our counties captive against our will. That's a quote from Mike McCarter, president of Citizens for Greater Idaho, which is pushing for Idaho to absorb 22 of Oregon's 36 counties and even some of California and Washington's. If we uh, if we're allowed to vote for which government officials we want, we should be allowed to vote for which government we want as well. End quote. Well, obviously, this is not uh, going to happen anytime soon. Idaho's legislature may uh, readily agree to bring in more land and population, but the shift would also require the approval of the Oregon legislature and U.S. Congress. Oregon isn't going to uh, do so for a number of reasons, but there's really only one that matters. The state legislature has strong Democrat majorities, 37 to 23 in the House and 18 to 11 in the Senate with one independent. And while letting Republican areas leave would actually solidify Democrat control over Oregon, They have little reason to empower their political opponents 
while letting go of tax revenue and nearly three quarters of the state's territory. Also, approval from Congress for such a split has come only three times in our nation's history. Kentucky was born out of Virginia in 19, or rather 1792, Maine separated from Massachusetts in 1820, and West Virginia seceded from Virginia in 1863. There's also a move afoot to split California into three states, but let's just say it's been a while since this happened. Well, the real story here is the serious division between conservatives and leftists. Again, despite the president's promise to bring unity, Democrats have only sown division for years now, given that a significant number of residents in one state have decided uh, divorce is better than living under the same roof. How much longer can we expect our country to abide its deeper divisions? It's a legitimate question. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back in a moment with Mark Moore, author of Core 52, Student Edition. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. Is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, over the past few decades, research has shown that church retention among young adults drops significantly after the high school years. Uh, generational differences and the increased prioritization of digital devices have further decreased students and teens' motivation when it comes to church involvement or faith in general. With a rapidly changing culture, many students have even started to question whether things like faith or the Bible still hold relevance and importance in their daily lives. Well, in his new biblical study book, Core 52 Student Edition, a 15-minute daily guide to build your Bible IQ in a year, former New Testament professor and now teaching pastor Mark Moore, he offers an essential resource for encouraging teens to remain rooted in Scripture and to grow in biblical confidence as they learn to speak to and interact with the modern world. For students seeking more knowledge about the Bible or their, uh, for parents, teachers, and youth pastors hoping to provide a fast path on biblical understanding for their teenagers, this book, Core 52 Student Edition, takes readers through the 52 most powerful passages in the Bible in order to strengthen teenagers' Christian worldview for conversations, for decisions, and overall spiritual growth. It's an excellent resource. Well, my guest, Mark E. Moore, is a, a teaching pastor at Christ Church of the Valley. His um, uh, his track record for helping students grow in God's Word is off the charts. In the bestseller Core 52, he has a personal, um, uh, was rather a personal trainer for building Bible IQ, and now with his student edition, he's helping young adults build their Bible knowledge. The perfect blend of serious Bible study and practical application. And I'm just thrilled to have Mark Moore with us here today. Welcome and thank you for joining us. Oh man, it's an honor, Georgine. Thank you. Well, let's begin by talking about the concept behind Core 52. Now there's a student edition, but this is the second edition because your first was very popular. Yeah, and it's actually it's the same content. The, the idea behind this is let's put it in students' hands with student language and student questions embedded in the text so that in their own world, in their own way, they can encounter the same material that adults have been encountering for now about two years. Now, how is this um, best used as personal devotion, a small group resource? What's the best way for students to approach this resource? Well, the best way is the way that you're actually going to use it. But here's, <laughs> here's three that I have in mind. Um, I, think, I think most teens, young adults, are able to read the book just as a standalone. But my idea was, since the adult version was already out, I can't think of a better way for parents to disciple their kids in their own living room or around their kitchen table. And it's funny, in the, in the context I work here at the church, 
our youth pastor and our, and our youth group is ridiculously huge. We have about 2,000 who go to summer camp just from high school. Our, our senior youth pastor is using this with his own son. And he's mm-hmm. saying it, it, there are conversations coming out of this that he could not have had in a different way. Now, I recognize, Georgine, that a lot of parents, but they didn't have the advantage that I had to go to a Bible college or, or to, to teach the Bible, and they might be intimidated to, to do some, a project like this. Look, I'm giving, this is the, kind of the brilliance behind it, a, a dad or, or a mom could grab the uh, standard edition and have a few extra pages per chapter that their student has. So they just, they just feel, just, you need to stay one step ahead, and that allows parents to really disciple their, their teens. Uh, another way it's being used, and youth groups all over the country are doing this, they're just tired of doing, you know, get fluff games with students because students actually are more mature. They don't always act like it, but they're more mature than we give them the credit for. And they really mm-hmm. do want to dig into the Bible. Your introduction, which I thought was brilliant, talked about the attrition rate of students post high school in church. It is 70%. That's that's unconscionable. And it's going to get worse with Gen Z than it has been uh, with Gen X or, or um, the, the current generation. The solution is not social programs. It is actually giving students the answers to the real questions. Like we've, we've just been ignoring their questions as if, if you ask a question somehow you don't have faith in God. Mm-hmm. But what, what I'm finding is the students respect serious conversations, even if you don't have the, all the answers, they, they respect the conversation. So this is a way for student groups in, with, with a coach to have a, a serious conversation around the most important text in the Bible. What a tremendous resource for families. Uh, what a tremendous resource for any adult who is concerned about the spiritual formation of a young person with whom they have some influence. Let's talk about how they do that, because you make a promise. If you can carve out 15 minutes a day, five days a week for one year, uh, you can move from curiosity about God's word to confidence in God's word. So we're not talking about, uh, you know, sitting at a desk for an hour a day <laughs> with a uh, with a young person, but um, moving through it through the course of the year and coming out at the other end with a solid Bible knowledge. Yeah, so I'll, I'll tell you a little bit of a backstory. When I before the book was ever published, the the man at the publisher, his name is Chris Sigford. He's a, he's a wonderful person, devout believer. He went on a, a four week sabbatical and took the book with him before it came out because he's going to you know he's going to have to publish this book. And he looked at the tagline "Build Your Bible IQ in a Year" and he says. Yeah, right. He came back after the month a huge fan because he was a mature Christian that actually did gain insight into the Bible, and yet it was it's deliverable at a like the cookies are down on the bottom shelf with it. This is nothing that anybody can't understand. It's just consumable and it takes whether you're a beginning Christian or a very mature Christian, it will take you further. And so what I, what I love about the student edition is, again, we're giving parents the tools to do this. And at the risk of yammering on here, because I, I, I love the product, <laughs> each chapter has five days of exercises. So the first chapter is when you sit down and read it. That's the first day. The second day of the week, 
I challenge you to memorize it. And on the, on the website, core52.org, there are videos. Uh, one is a teaching video where I just talk through the content. The other is a memorization video. You can literally watch me memorize it in front of you and make mistakes in front of you. And together, in about three minutes, we can tackle every one of the memory verses. Day three is a story from the Old Testament that both adults and students, the same story, are going to read to say, how does this principle apply in story form in someone's life in the Bible. Day four shows uh, some more connecting dots where the same principle pops up in different passages. The strategy, Georgine, is if, if you can understand the one verse, you now will automatically understand dozens of other verses mm-hmm. that have the same theme in it. The last day is a, is a practical, like, how are, how are we going to live this out? How are you going to apply it to your life? The student edition has an extra element, and that is discussion questions, four, maybe five discussion questions that an adult could sit down with either one-on-one or in a group setting. In other words, so all the youth pastors uh, out there listening right now, this is a plug-and-play resource that will legitimately take your students through a whole Bible theology in one year in a way that their parents can engage with students. That's, that's a winner. Absolutely. Again, the book is titled Core 52 Student Edition, a 15-minute daily guide to build your Bible IQ in a year. Now, we're going to need to take a break here in just a moment, but let me ask you, how did you uh, select the 52 most powerful passages in the Bible uh, that you focus on over the course of a year that help to uh, build the IQ of a young person in the course of a year? Yep, two ways. Uh, I taught Bible, New Testament specifically, for 22 years at the undergraduate level. Second, I listen to about four sermons a week, and I have been, I've been doing that for over 30 years. I know what preachers keep preaching on, and they keep preaching on it because it keeps changing people's lives. That is the foundation of how I called these 52 verses. We're talking with uh, Mark E. Moore. He's the author of Core 52 Student Edition, a 15-minute daily guide to build your Bible IQ in a year. We need to take a quick break, but we'll continue our conversation in just a moment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, and I'm continuing a conversation with Mark E. Moore. He's the author of Core 52 Student Edition, a 15-minute daily guide to build your Bible IQ in a year. I mentioned early in our uh, first segment that research shows that teenagers and the teenage year is pretty pivotal uh, in regard to cognitive and social development. Can you explain the the importance of encouraging students to engage with the Bible during this particular stage of life and the long-term impact it's likely to have? Well, that's a, that's a fascinating question, Georgine, because uh, the psychologist Piaget actually did a great deal of work on when, people's co- when people develop cognitively in different areas. It is in the teen years, particularly in middle school, where they, they really begin to think abstractly. And that's why you know, all you parents out there who've got a teenager that they like to argue with you, all they're doing is flexing a muscle that they've never felt flexed before. It's, they're not really that antagonistic. And so it's so important as they begin to flex those muscles and reason for the first time in their lives, 
that we respect them in that cognitive development period and give them give them real real answers and if we give them just bumper stickers or or platitudes they're going to sniff it out and they are going to leave the church if they don't feel like we are authentic Mm-hmm. And for this generation of Gen Z, it's authenticity is probably more important than almost any other character trait. So when we as a church, we feel like, oh, we've got we've got to protect them if we don't have all the right answers, or if we can't give a definitive answer about the age of the earth, or we can't, you know, talk about gender dysphoria. If we don't, if we don't talk honestly, both about what we do know and about what we, we can't say for sure, they will know it, and they, they will be disillusioned with the church. Now, you spent a couple of decades teaching the New Testament to college students. What, uh, from that experience, helped you to create a resource uh, for the teens that Core 52 is focused on? Yeah, I, so I hate to, I want to be careful how I answer the question, because I don't want it to come across as pompous. I, I'm not the best scholar in the world. I, I've been around the best scholars in the world, and I did my PhD at the University of Wales, uh, studying in Prague. And so, I, you know, I ran in the fast lane academically. I'm not the best scholar. I'm not the best preacher, because there are some that are, are smoother or more clever. They come up with better taglines. But as a combination of the two, that's my sweet spot. I can take the depths of theology, like the, what the big boys are, are, are batting with, and put it in a way that is common vernacular. So because, because I taught for 22 years freshmen, I mean, they're 18 years old. I mm-hmm. had to learn how to speak in a way that was clear, but also take them from the, the information they had to a higher level of cognitive uh, processing. So it, it was a skill and an exercise that I worked on for over two decades to master deep thoughts in common language. Can you give us some examples of the concepts that are covered in Core 52, uh, which is a one-year program, um, student edition? Yeah, we uh, start with Genesis 1-1, talk about creation. That idea of creation runs throughout the Bible, clear on to Revelation, where we've got basically, as a friend of mine wrote a book, Between Two Trees, you've got the tree of life in Genesis, the tree of life in the new heaven and new earth in Revelation, so that concept of creation is not, and it's not just that God made stuff. It is that God created a world in which we can know him, an ordered world with beauty and power and fire and anger and compassion. So it's, it's knowing the kind of world that God made. That's, that's the first chapter. The second chapter, <laughs> I won't go through all 52. The second chapter is being made in the image of God that you and I have attributes that are distinct from any other animal in the world, but are like God. For example, no other animal tells time. No other animal uses, uh, uses language, at least not in the same abstract way we do. They don't write sonnets. No other animal eats communally or decorates a table. No other animal appreciates art. And when you begin to understand the nature of who you are, that's a game changer. Again, going back to students' attrition uh, from the post-high school days in church. When they understand that they are created, special, loved by God, when the difficulties of life arise, if they have grasped that concept, 
they are much more resilient in a world where they find, oh, there is bullying, there is rejection, there is deference to some people because of their wealth or skin color or their political affiliation. It just makes them more resilient. Another concept that I love is the idea of happiness coming straight out of the Psalms. Another one is anxiety coming out of Philippians 4. Boy, have we needed that this year. Mm -hmm. And here's something fascinating. Uh, Barna Research, because of COVID, they looked at all the demographics and whose mental health deteriorated during COVID. Every single group, save one. It doesn't matter ethnicity or age or economic. There's only one group of people whose mental health improved, and it was only a slight improvement. But again, the only group to improve in mental health over this past year were those that went to church every week. Mm. How about that? Yeah. So yeah. This, it, this does matter. If I was an atheist, I would still go to church every week. I would still read my Bible at least four times a week because the statistics of those who are biblically engaged four times a week or more are startlingly different from those who don't go to church. So if you do have any listeners out there that are just tuning in or just happened to, uh, upon the station, you're thinking, man, I want my life to improve. Here's, here's a proven tactic. Read the Bible, go to church. It's as simple as that. <laughs> and follow it, it, uh, what it, you're being taught. It really is as simple as that. Because if you talk about what the scripture says, and again, going back to your question, what does this book talk about? It talks about um, how to pray. It talks about how to read your Bible. It talks about the atonement, big religious word. But basically, atonement is that, is that God saved us through the death of Jesus. Every, and you can fact check me on this out there in the, in the audience land. There is no other religion that says you get to God by what he did for you. Rather, you get to God by what you do for him. And you think about the, the, the mental pressure of that and what that would do to a person's psyche and a, and a person's relationships. If I get to God by what I do, I have to distance myself from unbelievers or those who don't live according to those standards because I can't get drugged down. But, and this is a bit of a tangent, but I think in, in, in terms of social justice, reaching out to the poor and the disenfranchised, the, the immigrants and the orphans, the single most important moment in human history was when Jesus touched a leper. Because up to that point, everyone assumed, they knew, that uncleanness was contagious. And what Jesus proved is that cleanness that comes from him is more contagious, contagious than any uncleanness that comes out of the world. It is because of that fact that Christians are able to get out of their own bubbles and, and are supposed to reach out to those who need, as Jesus said, he's, the physician comes for the sick and not the well. You make the point in um, Core 52 Student Edition um, that Bible literacy, literacy isn't the problem. It's an opportunity. I think many of us are fearful that young people, and for that matter, uh, the Christian world in general, are, are not familiar with what the scriptures teach. They, they are followers of Jesus, but not necessarily um, familiar with his word. Uh, explain how this opportunity should um, encourage us uh, to use a resource like this one to engage young people. 
Yeah, thank you for that question. What I've noticed, and this is going back to the genesis of this whole project, mm-hmm. we know that reading the Bible makes such a practical difference in people's lives, the quality of their marriages, their mental health. So I thought, how can we get people to engage the Bible more? I just started paying attention why people don't read the Bible. It's not because they don't want to. It's because the Bible is thick, and so it's intimidating. And even when you do open it, there's a lot in there that you just, I can't relate to. You know, I've never met a Pharisee. I don't even know where Philistia is. And, and, you know, all, all the big words of the Bible just kind of throw us. What if we could, what if we could give it to people, not and say, you don't have to read every word of every page. Here are the big ideas. Just get the big ideas and then you'll be comfortable delving in more deeply. Mm-hmm. And I would love for everyone to read their Bible an hour a day. Honestly, I don't. So I'd be a hypocrite if I, if I said that. We live lives. So how can we take a big book and make it small and take a foreign book and make it familiar? That's what Core 52 does in every essay. We take one of the big pillars of the Bible and make it manageable in your real daily life. 15 minutes a day, five days a week for one year. Yeah, we're just about out of time, but I want to just emphasize that you have additional information and free downloadables on core52.org. What resources can students or parents, teachers, youth pastors find there that will help them uh, work through Core 52 Student Edition? The big ones are core52.org, or they could just go to YouTube or um, – my my mind just went blank on the other video resource. Go to YouTube and – search for core 52 you will find a five-minute teaching video for every chapter as well as a memorization video three minutes for every verse we challenge you to memorize that's the that's the big one there's also on the website downloadable questions for the standard edition and the student edition those are in the book itself if someone wanted they felt like i want to lead a group through this and i really don't know how there is for purchase a leader's guide that they can find on core52.org as well. We've also got some fun stuff like banners and bookmarks and uh, the 52 verses on memory cards that they can purchase as well. But none of that is essential. The, The big stuff is free. Excellent. Well, Mark Moore, thank you so much for joining us today and for this incredible resource. Thank you. It's been it's a joy to talk about because I know what it does for people. Amen. Again, Core 52 Student Edition, a 15-minute daily guide to build your Bible IQ in a year. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back in a moment to wrap things up. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to the final segment of The Georgine Rice Show. Tomorrow on the program, I'm looking forward to a conversation with Craig Prather. He's the author of Transformed by the Spirit. And then on Wednesday and Thursday of this week, we're going to be joined by our friends and family from Food for the Poor with our Radiothon. We're going to give you an opportunity to meet the uh, uh, the dire needs of those who are suffering around the world, and we'll give you more details. Uh, that's coming up on Wednesday and Thursday. Again, our Food for the Poor Radiothon. 
Also, we want to welcome an audio broadcast ministry from pastor and author Brian Chappelle. The show is called Unlimited Grace and is dedicated to spreading the gospel of God's grace to all people. We desire for believers everywhere to serve God through faith in his grace that frees from sin and fuels the joy of transformed lives. You can catch Unlimited Grace weekdays right here on KPDQ, 6 o'clock p.m. and 11 p.m. on 93.9 KPDQ. You can also listen 7.30 a.m., 3.30 p.m. on True Talk 800. Well, Oregon will allow people to go maskless outside, but will require them to be fully vaccinated against COVID-19 and be able to prove it to forego masks in most public indoor settings. Well, that's according to new guidance released by the Oregon Health Authority on Tuesday. Oregonians will no longer be required to wear masks in public outdoor areas, regardless of their vaccine status, under the new guidance. However, the state is still recommending that people wear masks in crowds and large gatherings, especially if they're unvaccinated or at high risk for COVID-19. The state is going to allow fully vaccinated people to forego masks in most indoor spaces if their inoculation status can be verified. In other words, a passport, putting the onus on businesses, employers, and the church or other faith institutions to check vaccination records. Well, the new guidance comes after the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention announced last week that fully vaccinated people generally do not need to wear masks or maintain physical distance in most public settings. Now, masks have been required in most circumstances across all of Oregon since the 1st of July. And of course, that was 2020. Well, some states have responded cautiously to the new guidance. They haven't yet lifted mask mandates. However, Dr. Dean Seidlinger, who is Oregon's health officer and the epidemiologist, said that he wasn't specifically aware of other states that had adopted similar vaccine passport requirements as the state of Oregon has now opted to. Seidlinger said vaccinated individuals will be required to show their vaccine cards or provide a photocopy or photo of their vaccine cards to forego masks in public indoor settings. So you can actually take a a picture on your phone and present that. He said the new guidance would be enforced by the Oregon Occupational Safety and Health Division and other state agencies, but added that the the state was not expecting businesses to determine the authenticity of customers' uh, vaccine cards. Now, there will be a a rebellion, those who believe it's uh, inappropriate for the state to require uh, individuals to provide proof of vaccination, particularly those who have opted not to have them or for um, other reasons, uh, don't have them. Uh, We hope that Oregonians will not lie or cheat or put others at risk by forging a vaccine record, Seidlinger says, if they aren't vaccinated. Oregon will still require all people, including those uh, who have been fully vaccinated, to wear masks and maintain physical distance on public transportation and in schools, at healthcare facilities, homeless shelters, long-term care homes, and correctional institutions, businesses and venue operators that don't want to check vaccination cards or that want to maintain more restrictive policies are free to do so, but they'll still be allowed to require masks at the at their discretion. So if you uh, approach one of these facilities and they say you're required to wear a mask here, there's no point in arguing the point. Uh, the state has given them the flexibility to require masks at their discretion. While they uh, can continue to serve their customers and have their their employees wear masks uh, in these settings, or if they uh, can verify that their employees or patrons have been vaccinated, they can choose to go that way. So it's sort of a mishmash in the state of, of Oregon. Once again, the OHA has put essential employees in a position of enforcer uh, of public policy without giving them the tools to protect themselves or the public. 
uh, says uh, one uh, spokesperson for the UFCW Local 555 concerned about uh, who's now in charge and who will be held accountable. This spokesman represents the local, which represents grocery store workers like Fred Myers, Safeway, Albertsons, telling essential employees to be to be the mask police and asking customers for their medical information puts them in harm's way and is insulting after months of ignoring the needs and safety of the people who put food on our tables. Well, some small businesses said last week that they wouldn't feel comfortable verifying customers' vaccination statuses and Oregon's uh, Enchanted Forest Amusement Park announced Monday that it would... uh, delay its reopening plans after some people responded to its decision to continue to require masks with uh, threats and angry comments. So welcome to the new world of confusing orders uh, from the state of Oregon and elsewhere. Well, Seidlinger said that the state will reevaluate its mask mandate and other health restrictions when 70 percent of uh, the state's residents, 16 and older, have been vaccinated. So far, I think we're at about 55 percent. Uh, some um, choosing not to be vaccinated. I think people should be free to make that decision. Uh, others uh, just choosing not to do it yet. Whatever the, the reason is, uh, in the land of the free, there need to be accommodation for those who say no. Well, Oregon governor says the vaccine verifications are an interim measure. That's not going to be long term. Um, so make note. And Oregon is warning doctors to look for heart inflammation in those uh, recently vaccinated, particularly uh, younger males who have been vaccinated, who have had uh, heart inflammation issues. So wanted to, uh, to mention that. We went into greater detail in the first hour, but out of time here in the second. Uh, once again, tomorrow, Craig Prather will be my guest. Transformed by the Spirit is the book we'll talk about. I want to thank James Blinn for producing, Clark Hilton for engineering, Dan Rice for the use of his office, and thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ.